pray with me, please? God in heaven, you are the one and only that is true and righteous. You are worthy, O King. For us to be in this place and to sing songs and worship and adoration of you. So we praise your name. We need you now this morning as we we come to your word. We need your help. You're a loving Father who loves His children, so please love us well by giving us understanding as we now read and study. We praise you and thank you for our time. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. A quick little update. Had breakfast with uh, Pastor Matt and Miss Haley. <laughs> Sorry. I'll talk to my boys, Miss Haley, Miss Haley, to you guys, but um, and they're doing well. They're enjoying their time away, their sabbatical. Um, but know this: that they miss you dearly. I mean, I cannot talk to that guy without him saying, "Hey, can I please come back to church? Can I please see the people?" So um, he loves you. He sends his love, and uh, they're away this week, and so enjoying time as a family. So we. We rejoice in that opportunity for them. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick off, pick up where we left off last week. We ended in verse 5, so we pick up in verse 6 this week. It's really difficult to keep track around here. You're still on page 870 if you grab a pew Bible. And again, if you don't have a Bible, then please take that one. Consider it a gift. Read it and fall in love with the God of it. Last week, I gave you a, a main statement that was kind of the umbrella statement for the whole text that we had last week, for the whole message that where God was providentially at work in times of conflict. And we saw conflict right off the bat in Acts chapter 15, the end of Acts 15, with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had, a, had an argument. Uh, to, to say the least, it was a sharp disagreement. They had violent actions and strong emotion. That's how it was it was performed, that's how their argument went down, and so they ended up separating. And they separated, and Paul got Silas, he chose Silas, and Barnabas took with him John Mark. And they were going back to visit the, the churches from their first journey, from their first trip. And we saw how God was so providentially at work. I would say he's still providentially at work. We don't, we don't always see the hidden parts of how he's working and why he's working. But here in the, in, in the passage from last week, we, we got not just one trip, but we got two teams to take a trip. They multiplied the efforts. Paul goes on, he, he meets up with Timothy, he recruits Timothy, and by a choice of, of really submission, Timothy understood what, what Paul's heartbeat was. Paul's heartbeat was, I will, I will do whatever it takes, I will be whoever I need to be in order that some might come to Christ. So Timothy put that into action. He was circumcised and opened up opportunities of ministry and influence with Jewish people. And the results over and over, we saw the end of 15, beginning of 16, is that the churches were strengthened. They were built up. It pointed our attention back to Acts chapter 3 with a paralytic man where his joints, when he was healed, were strengthened and firmed up. And so the foundation and the, the structure of the church, the, 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 the parts of the body, the believers that made up the church, were strengthened and knit together. 
So that was last week. God was at work, but he, he didn't just stop being at work when we finished, when we closed our time, when we prayed and we were done. He's continued to be at work. He's been at work in the building of his church even since the beginning of Acts. When you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And here in chapter 16, we're going to dabble into the end of the earth of what they knew at that point. But all the while, we'll see where God's at work. So just as God was providentially at work in times of conflict last week, God is, for this week, God is providentially at work. When we say providentially, we mean wise and purposeful. So we said last week, we, we brought up the two terms sovereignty, which is the, the right and the power for God to do and to choose and to act in the way, any way that he wants, because he's the almighty creator God. And then providence is just the wise and purposeful use of that sovereignty. And so we're saying that God is providentially at work. He is wise and purposeful. This week in chapter 16, and the calling and the converting of people. Turn your attention to verse 6. Let's get started. Here in verse 6, we see where Paul's continuing on his trip. He's heading towards the province of Asia. It's not, if you look at a map today, it's, when you see Asia, it's, it's not the Asia on your map. It's a section of the Roman Empire, but the direction is south. And where he's at, he's going to go south into towards Asia, towards this province of Asia. And verse 6 picks up, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're headed towards Asia, but for some reason the Holy Spirit forbids them. And when we say forbid here, we mean it's hindered or prevented or stopped. In some way, we're not told all the details. That's the beauty of how Luke writes the account of the beginning of the church here in the book of Acts. We don't get every detail. We don't get every interaction. We don't get every time that, that Paul shared the gospel and spoke the gospel and people were responded in faith and were saved. We don't get all of those. He highlights the influential cities. He gives us some details, gets us a little bit of meat on the bones, and then through the, the rest of the context of Scripture, we can understand how we, as believers, should function personally and then individually and then corporately as the church. So we're not given all the details. We don't know why they were hindered or prevented. But going south towards Asia was not it. So they turned their attention, verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. And Bithynia was north. So they said, well, goodness, if you won't let us go south, then for whatever reason, we're going to trust you because we know that you're providentially at work. We got that, God. Then we'll go north. And so they head towards Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus, it said, did not allow them. Now, now this is, it gives you, you need to, you need to picture those those awkward times in life where you're walking down a hallway and somebody's coming towards you and you're going that way. You're going in opposite directions, but you're going to meet somewhere in this hallway and you know it's coming and you know you're going to do the dance where you're going to zig and they're going to zig. Hey, I thought you were supposed to go right. I was supposed to go left. No, it's like the rules of the road don't apply on a, on a hallway, right? And so you have that, that awkward, but it, that's the preventing. That's the getting in the way. That's the stopping. That's the hindering that we see here. We don't know why, but we, we know that this is taking place. Verse 9 picks up, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So he has a dream. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, he has a dream, undoubtedly. It gives a little bit of direction. 
So he goes and tells his team. And he tells his team, and we see in verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. But what we have here is, is Luke and his, him being selective on what details he gives, the details that he does give, we should pay attention to. So he, he changes the way that he's writing, and he starts using we and us. So it gives us the understanding that, Paul, that Luke has joined the team. So now you have a dream team of, of servants, right? You've got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy, and now you've got Luke. Right? They're all come together, and Paul's telling about this dream. And Paul's just not um, heavy-handed leader, uh, leadership on this issue. He's not just saying, hey, I had this dream, we're going to Macedonia. That's not the way verse 10 reads. Verse 10 reads that they got together, they came together, and they, it says, concluded that they ought to obey this dream, follow this dream, go to Macedonia because God is providentially at work. Now he's going to call people and how he's going to convert people. We're going to go visit these churches, but he's, he's called, we know that he's well ahead of us. Based off the history and, the, and, and God, God's character and how he's worked and how he's functioned, throughout all of their lives, they, they conclude, it says that they bring together or knit together the different facts and understanding that they have concerning who God is, how he might lead them and how he might teach them. The team works together to determine the direction God is leading. In plurality, they decipher the movement and direction of God, where he might be working and which direction they need to go. This gives us a little glimpse of the importance of good, godly counsel and community. People around you that love God. People around you that are going in the same direction. They want to make much of God. They want to exalt God. They want to glorify God in how they live and how they talk, how they work and raise their families. Being surrounded by those people is helpful as we, should we go south to Asia? Should we go north to Bithynia? All along the while, God's funneling them to what we know now as Europe or to Philippi, the, the region of Macedonia in the story. When we moved, it was um, the beginning of 2013. Jen and I, Jen and I had um, decided that we were going to move to Colorado. It was, a, it was a big decision for us because we had spent 35 years in the same place, the same, the same area. I mean, we grew up there. That's, that's all that we had known. Our families were there. But we knew because of some deficiencies in me, lacking in my husband and wife relationship, my marriage, my parenting relationship with my boys, my own walk in, de in determining and understanding and deciphering how God might lead me in ministry. I had some gaps, I had some holes, I had some blind spots. And so my mentor was in Colorado, you, some of you know this, my mentor was there. And so we decided to move there so that I could be involved in some intense accountability and discipleship. I wanted weekly, if, if he wouldn't give me daily, I wanted weekly touches. I wanted, I wanted some account. I wanted to go through some study. I wanted to do ministry and let him watch and help shape me and form me and see those blind spots. Help him, help him uh, help me form this character because uh, I wanted to reflect the glory of God better. And so it was the right decision. Uh, we made the right decision as a family unit. We told our boys and then we told uh, some of our friends. Now, we were involved in this small little house church, like a church plan. We're trying to figure out, there's four families, trying to figure out what we're doing, where God might be leading. Is this going to grow into something bigger? What should we do here? And I remember the time that I got reminded of the importance and the need of good godly counsel and accountability. And it's, 
just went, I went to one of the guys and I said, hey, listen, just so you know, remind you, I've been in the same place for 35 years. Remind, uh, I just want to let you know, we're going to move to Colorado. Seems kind of extreme. And he lovingly held me accountable. He lovingly came back. Because I've been the one waving the flag of the importance of community. Hey, there's, there's great wisdom and counsel and prayer and encouragement in community. And there, here I'm acting as if I had no cares in the world, nobody's opinions, nobody's help mattered, and I didn't need it. That's how I was acting. And so he called me on it. He said, hey, listen, you're, this is what you say. This is what we're supposedly about. But you didn't do that. And just drove home the fact that, hey, it's important. It's important for us to have that around us. And, and Paul has that. He shares this dream. He shares what he, this may be direction. And he goes to his team, and, and they together, they conclude that this is, in fact, the direction they need to go. And we don't get all the details up front. They didn't get all the details up front. When they were pursuing, going towards uh, Asia in the south, they didn't know that ultimately they were going to Philippi. They were just trying to be faithful in that step. God turned them. They, they tried to go north to Bithynia. Same thing. They knew just enough to keep going. They just wanted to be faithful in the next step. So now God is directing them towards, towards Macedonia, towards Philippi. It's almost as if they got to that scenic overlook. You know, you know when you're driving in the mountains and, and you're on the switchbacks and you're just going back and forth and back. It seems like you're not gaining any elevation. You're not really going anywhere. All the scenery looks the same. All the trees look the same. And, and, you, and you feel like you're just spinning your wheels. So you get to that scenic overlook, and then you can kind of see, man, this is where I'm at. Okay, in fact, I have gained some elevation. That road I was taking, I've been driving for so long, it actually took me somewhere. I'm higher in this mountain. You can look back and see where you've been, and you can kind of peek around, and sometimes you can see kind of where you're going, what the terrain's going to look like, what the town looks like down there that you may be headed to. So sometimes you get a scenic overlook. Oftentimes we don't. We're just trying to be faithful in the next step. Is it Asia, Lord? I want to be faithful. Nope. Holy Spirit said no. Is it, is it Bithynia? Spirit of Jesus says no. So through this and the godly counsel, they decide the Lord is calling them to Macedonia. And they knew because God is providentially at work, and he has been providentially at work in a wise and purposeful way in their lives, that God must be at work wherever he's, he's leading them to. So they, they look forward to, they look to Macedonia, to the city of Philippi, and they say, God has some intention for us to be there. And he wants us there. And we know because of the passage that we're getting ready to read, he had a divine appointment set for Paul and his team and three different people. Many others, but we get details about three, three other people. So Paul and his team, they set out for Macedonia. Another, another wave of proof that, hey, the Lord is in this. The list of way the Lord is directing us. Paul probably looked at Silas and said, man, I think we made the right decision. Isn't that how it, isn't that how it works sometimes when you're following the Lord? You don't, not 100% sometimes. You, I believe I'm just going to trust the Lord. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take this next step. And if he blocks me, if he hinders me, if he, if he gets in my hallway, then so be it. And I want to be faithful in this next step. And so they got on this boat, and they had to go some 150 miles from point A to point B. And they, they made that 150-mile trek in like two days. If you scroll to your right or if you flip to your right, 
Acts chapter 20 details them coming back point B to point A. Same track, same 150 miles, took them five days. Now, we don't know. We, we have the luxury of reading a lot into that. Like, oh, well, the Lord must have been that, gave them a good headwind, and they just, they, they just slowed them just so fast. And they, oh, he gave them obstacles, or he gave them the wrong winds on the way back. We're not necessarily, not necessarily sure, but just another little, hey, I'm going to take this next step. Made good time. So in hindsight, uh, hindsight, they can look back and look at the faithfulness of God. Look, at, look how he swiftly moved us to Philippi because he had those divine appointments, those gospel conversations that we were going to have to have. Look at verse 13. We come across, uh, I told you we're going to see three different people that they're going to come in contact with. The first one comes in verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, there was no synagogue in the Philippi, so they had to go outside the city. And you got a picture, it was kind of like a, a picnic Bible study by the riverside there. Just, just kind of, that's how it was. And Paul and Silas and and Timothy and Luke, and they're, they're navigating their way through the crowd, however big it was. They're having conversations. They're, they're living in, on purpose because God wanted them there, and if he's, if he's providentially at work, then, then he, there's a wise and purposeful need for, or, or reason for them being there. So they're talking to people, and we don't know everybody that they talked to, but they came across this group of women who happened to be there. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. So first lady is Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So this lady, Lydia, she was from Thyatira. She was an entrepreneur. She'd set up a business there in Philippi, and she was a seller of purple goods. A seller of purple goods meant that she was in the, in the top part of society. Purple is like close to royalty. So um, the upper class would have bought her goods. And so she's wealthy. She's done well. She's well thought of. She has people around her, people that are in her household that, that work for her and work with her. It tells us that she was a religious Gentile. She was a worshiper of God. We know that she was not, not one that trusted Christ as her Savior, not one that had responded in faith yet. Because the second half of verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I don't think Lydia is much different than some of us in this room where, where we spent some time, maybe you're in, in this time, this period in your life right now where you're, you find great comfort and safety in a church and the people are kind of nice, most of the people are kind of nice and, and it's a safe place to be and, and um, you, you like people that are moral and upstanding and, and, and good, good in society and so you hang out at the church and you hear some of the teaching and you maybe even sing some of the songs but the Lord's never opened your heart to understand the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the words that you're reading or singing. That's how Lydia was. She's a worshiper of God, dabbled in it, but her, her heart had never been opened. She was like what Ephesians 2 says, she was dead in her trespasses and sins. Verse 4, God made us alive. And when we can see the beauty of the scripture, it's an act of God working an act of the Lord here on Lydia to open her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul's just being faithful. He's just saying what he came there to say, to make much of God, to proclaim the gospel. Verse 15, and after she was baptized, 
and our household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we have Lydia, this wealthy entrepreneur, this religious woman, who encounters Paul and his team, and who's confronted by the gospel. And through a miraculous work, the Lord opened her heart, it says. She was saved. Because in verse 15, it says that she was baptized. And nowhere in Scripture do you see where baptism precedes salvation. But we can infer, we can understand through the whole context of Scripture that she was saved. First encounter was with Lydia. The second encounter, verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So we have this girl, she's uh, mid to late teens-ish, um, and she's, she's unnamed, we don't know her name, but she's got this spirit of divination, she's demon-possessed. And in her demon possession, being possessed by the demon, one of the things that flows from that is she can tell fortunes, she can tell the future. She can read cards or however the, they do it now. And she was good at it so some men realized hey we can make some money on this so these men basically owned her and used her as as their property to to sell off to tell fortunes and they made money they made a lot of money and they enjoyed their life she was still just a slave girl that was demon possessed so she's following around she's she's seeing paul she's around him but look at look at verse 17, she followed Paul and us, there's the, there's the team, and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You say, like I say, that's 100% true. 100% right, I'm okay with that. Paul was not. Well, Paul, aren't you men, servants of the Most High God? Aren't you proclaiming the way of salvation? Isn't she speaking truth? But her lifestyle was distorting the truth, causing it to be heresy. Not in what she said, but what Paul was frustrated with, it says annoyed, it's, it's more grieved. He was downcast, he was, his, his heart was, was grieved, it was pulled down by the fact that she was following them around and proclaiming truth, aligning herself with them. She was known in the area. Paul was new. Paul's saying, hey, listen, your, your life does not match up with the message that you're saying. People are going to get confused. People are going to think that we're on the same team. And then when you're telling fortunes and all this other kind of mess, it's going to muddy the waters for some. She kept doing it for many days, verse 18 says. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, grieved is a better word to put there, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. ESV says, and it came out that very hour. I think a better translation comes from the NIV or the NASB, and it says, at that very moment. And what do we see at that very moment, at the proclamation of the name of Jesus, at the saying of the name of Jesus, she was forever changed. How do we know she was changed? Well, in verse 19, the people that owned her got mad because it changed their income. Demons fled the demons left all of her life was changed the employers lost their flow of cash because this girl encountered the name of jesus 
I have to I have to be fair. I have to be right here. We're uncertain. We don't we don't know for sure. We can infer because of the the placement that Luke puts this account, this story in the the context of their their time in Philippi. We could infer that that she was saved. And that would make me feel good and that would actually fit really well in the message and it would be awesome. Um but if you're uncomfortable presuming that she was saved, because it doesn't explicitly say that she was saved, then look at what else God might be doing and God might be working in and through in this story. What I see is a, some unnamed slave girl that's demon-possessed, was confronted with the name of Jesus and her bondage and her chains to these demons. How does that give you hope, Chris? How, how should that give you hope, family? Because the same name of Jesus that broke the chains of demon possession can break chains and bondage in your life. But I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I continue to have these thoughts or I continue to have these fears or I continue to struggle with anger, Chris, at the name of Jesus your bondage can be freed. He can let loose the hold on your life that anger has. Or the defeating cycle of submission to pornography that you struggle with over and over in the cycle and you have two good days and you think, man, I'll never do that again. And oops, in your own power and your own strength, you fail again tell yourself you're no good and you're washed up and you're never going to have victory but at the name of Jesus you can have victory at the name of Jesus those things that you tuck away into the, your inside those, those negative thoughts those hurtful attitudes that nobody else knows but it's eroding your life it's, it's, it's killing you from the inside it's cancerous Jesus can heal you from it. At the name of Jesus, there's power to break the chains, break the bondage, break the strongholds that are in your life. So this morning, I would ask that you would let the name of Jesus wash over you and do the healing work that only his name can do. Through it, I believe you'll find freedom. This girl's saved from her slavery to those demons and to the men but let's be real she was still just a freed slave so life wasn't going to look really good afterwards for her in society and in, in their culture she's a freed slave it's going to be uphill sledding for a while her life was changed that that very day in that very moment it says here it, it takes me to 1 Peter 5 where it talks about the lion on the prey, right? The subtlety of Satan didn't work. They went to outright persecution. The men that owned this young slave girl had uh, become angry. And so in the center of town, they had these things called magistrates and they would rule over, they would, they would, they would determine and decipher between arguments or, or issues going on in town. And so the men take Paul and Silas to the magistrates and they plead their case. And they, instead of saying, hey, these guys did something we didn't like, 
now we're poor or we're not going to make as much money. I don't like them. Throw them in jail. That's not what they did. They said, hey, they're doing things that are going to rise up in, in the city that are going to be bad for the city. Okay. So the magistrates go along with it. They find their guys that are trained to beat people, to whip people, to cane people. They were good at their job. They liked their job. They didn't like in, inflicting pain on people. And so he gave them over to those guys and they they beat Paul and Silas and they beat them good it wasn't just a little hey don't do that no more please really we've had this conversation son no he beat them to a bloody pulp they beat them to a bloody pulp so their backs were filleted open their legs were bruised and bleeding when the magistrates were saw enough they they took Paul and Silas and they handed them over to the jailer and they said here put them in jail and keep them safe jailer put them into the inner prison so it was he kind of had a graduating or decreasing uh, size it funneled down that's where all the refuse that's where all the the nastiness would flow they put them into the inner prison he just didn't stop there he put them in these stocks he put them in these implements to cause even more torture it have places for their legs to be so they could be stretched out or made more inconvenienced and think about it with their backs wide open with their legs wide open do we cry out for mercy? Do we cry out for help? Do we cry out for, uh, this is injustice. This is not how I should be treated. I'm here because God is providentially at work. I'm supposed to be here. I have some divine uh, intervention, uh, divine conversations that I'm supposed to have. You don't understand, jailer. You need to let me go. Verse 25. Look there. They're in the inner prison. Their, their feet are fastened in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. And my, one of my favorite parts of this verse is, and the prisoners were listening to them. You want to see how God was providentially at work? They had some encounters with, with Lydia, this wealthy woman, and this demon-possessed girl, and that kind of turned things sideways. And sharing Christ, evangelizing was against the law, and it's going to hold a capital offense. So they were actually being put into prison, and and their time is short. Now they're, they're just waiting to die. Once the final judgment is done, then, then they'd be executed. All for being obedient. But God didn't waste that, that opportunity. See how God was at, at work in this situation? He gave them an audience. It says that the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were there. They couldn't go anywhere. They were just like Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas began to pray. They begin to sing hymns, beaten and bloody, uncomfortable. They didn't turn to anger or frustration at that unnamed slave girl, that young girl. If she hadn't gotten in our way, if she hadn't frustrated us, if she hadn't been so annoying, we wouldn't be in this situation. No. They allowed their theology to move them to doxology, their understanding and trust in who God was, to be poured out in praise to that God. So they pray and they sing. We don't know what they prayed. We don't know the songs that they sang. But as I sat at my desk this week, I was contemplating, Lord, could it have been something like, I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led 
by his nail-pierced hand. This situation is horrible. My Savior has holes in his hand to show me how much he loves me. And so, as bad as this seems right here, I trust he's at work. Did he echo what we sang this morning? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. This jailer is not in charge. These magistrates with these boys that really like whooping, they're not in charge. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man. As hard as you work, there's a bigger thing going on here. can never pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Feet in the stocks, firmly planted on the name of Jesus. The one that had changed their life. The one that had given them a peace that they've come to know. Even though now their heart and flesh may fail. There was an anchor for their soul. And at that point, in that dungeon, in that prison, the prisoners could hear and the jailer could hear Paul and Silas say, it is well. Why? Because the victory is won. Jesus is risen from the dead. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's not a comforting thought. If you're the jailer, that's kind of scary. Because you've you got to remember that this was an actual jail. This is not just where they put people who are evangelizing about Christ. Some, most of the people in this prison deserve to be there. And now the doors are swung open and the shackles are broken off. Unfastened, it says. The jailer wakes up. He sees that the prison doors are open. He draws his sword because he, he knows if a jailer can't do his job, and keep the inmates inside the jail. He has no value to anyone outside the jail, and he'll be killed. So he doesn't want to go through that issue. He doesn't want to go through that punishment. He doesn't want to go through that torture. So he pulls out his sword, and he, he thinks the only way I can get out of this is to kill myself. And he's about ready to kill himself. Verse 27 says, thinking that the prisoners had escaped. They're all gone. I'm done. I'm finished. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, the same guys that he rolled in and was told to keep them safe, but went a little bit extra and put them in stocks to just make them a little bit more uncomfortable. Now he's trembling in fear and bowing down before them. Verse 30, it says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's interesting is Paul and Silas did not react the way that me and my flesh, I would like to react sometimes. Well, what you can do is you can stop acting so rude to people, and you can start treating people like they're actually uh, persons, like they're people, okay? Because we have value too, and you should stop beating me when all I was doing was being obedient to my God and telling people about Jesus. I mean, really, how's that? It's, I didn't steal anything. I didn't, I didn't hurt you. I didn't. No. What must I do to be saved? Well, clean up this mess because this dungeon is not livable. I, I deserve better. 
sir, what must I do to be saved? He says, trembling, falling at, fall in silence. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Consistent, consistent, consistent is the way to salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What's it say? And you will be saved. We already know because the Jerusalem Council, remember that whole that whole issue, that whole letter? It's not salvation plus something. They wanted to say salvation plus, hey, but you need to be circumcised. We already went through all this a couple chapters back. It's not salvation plus. It's salvation. It's your faith-filled response in the work of Jesus. The name of Jesus, you can be saved. Spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. We know that he got saved. Because in verse 35, it says the jailer rejoices with his household and his new faith, he believed in God. In our text today, we've seen over and over, I believe, where God was providentially at work. He was wise and purposeful in the way that he was working to call and to convert. We saw three different instances. You saw with Lydia, the wealthy woman. So with the poor, unnamed slave girl that was demon-possessed, and then finally to the jailer, that blue-collar guy, just punching the clock, waiting till retirement, just trying to do a good job, just trying to stay out of trouble, keep his head down, stay in the middle of the pack. Front of the pack, you get your head cut off. Back of the pack, you get kicked in the rear. Just stay in the middle of the pack, just do your job. That's all he's trying to do. Blue-collar worker, the jailer. So when we read a text, when we read God's Word, we have to... We have to do three things, I believe. I, I, I explained them to you last week. We focus up. We, we look towards God. Our, our attention is up, and we say, okay, what is God doing? What has God done in this text? One of the major things that I see, he's done many things in this text, but one of the major things that I see in this text is that he is showing that the gospel is for all sorts of people, all different types of people. You get the wealthy, you got a slave, and you got a blue-collar worker. God's not saying, hey, you got to live up to this. It's not a ride at some amusement park. you got to be this tall to ride this ride. Sorry. you got to be this good. You're, you're down here. Keep working. What must I do to be saved? Oh, you got to keep working. There's none of that. The gospel and salvation is the work of Jesus. We see where Lydia's heart was opened by God. A miracle took place. Salvation comes in our faith-filled response to the gospel. So we focus up, we focus in, and then we focus out. When we focus in, what should I learn? I should learn that the gospel requires a response. Either in obedience, if you're a child of God, maybe you're telling the gospel to yourself again today. Maybe you're hearing the gospel again today. You're all, all, already a follower of Jesus. You're already responded in faith to the gospel. You need to remind yourself that I need to respond. I need to act in it. I need to live like Christ. I need to have this good, godly character about my life. Or maybe you, you're maybe you're one of those worshipers of God where you're just um, you're just kicking the tires. You like these people coming to church because it's convenient and it's safe. You've heard a lot about God, but your heart's never been opened up to the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what it is the name of Jesus. So your life's never been changed by Jesus. 
I would call you. I think the, the text is calling you, urging you to respond to Jesus. To respond in faith and obedience to the gospel. Then we focus out. What should you give yourself to? How should you, how should you then go from here? The evidence of a changed life is you're going to have the character of Christ. So over and over and over, we see with, with these people, they, they told others, every single one of them, Lydia went to her household, the slave girl went to her owners, the jailer went to his household. They told others. They had to talk about it. They had to, hey, man, I'm just going to tell you, I was demon-possessed. This guy says something about Jesus, and now I can't make you no more money jailer comes home hey you know what i do you know the stench that i the stuff i smell like when i come home from work family but this is what happened and now i believe in jesus told others you see generosity you see hospitality lydia called them into her home she wanted to take care of she compelled them like she wouldn't give up and they finally relented like all right we'll go to your house that's cool and then the jailer, you see, the jailer, almost immediately, he goes from treating them like inmates to treating them like brothers. He takes them out of the prison. He washes their wounds. He takes care of them. He takes them back to his house to introduce them to his household. Again, not a common thing for the jailer to do. But because he's encountered Jesus, because Jesus has changed his life, it's changed his actions telling others he's being generous he's giving them food bringing them back to his home all part of the plan all part of the perfect plan that God had for those people in Philippi started way back just trying to figure out we're going left we're going north we're going south we're going to Asia we're going to Bithynia God funneled them because he is providentially at work he's wise and purposeful in how he's working to call and to convert so my aim today, if you've never responded in faith to the gospel, that today you would make that decision. Today you would make that choice. We've got life group leaders. We've got deacons. We've got pastors. We've got, hey, if you've got a heartbeat in this room and you know how to get to Jesus, and somebody comes up to you, please tell them how to get to Jesus. But if you don't know Christ, if your life's never been changed by the name of Christ, don't leave here today without getting that straight. Close your eyes, let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust, we believe that you have been and are at work in a wise and useful way. You are careful. You are purposeful. And so we, we trust you, Father. You've been faithful so we can rely on you. Christ, we thank you for the work that you did on the cross, to be obedient, to take our punishment, to take my punishment that I, that I owed but I could not pay, that being perfection. Father, thank you for sending your son to redeem his people. Spirit, I would ask that in this room there are people that do not know saving faith you would open their heart, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty and the good news of the gospel. 
give you the glory, we give you the praise, all the honor that is due. Pray this through your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.